But there comes a point where year after year or every other year, one of the mortgages gets paid off and suddenly it jumps because you had to pay like $800, $900, $1,200 a month in the mortgage that now suddenly almost all of it comes into it, into your bank account every month. What is up, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Today, our guest is Dr. Axel Meyerhofer. Axel is a real estate investor who retired from the Air Force in 2001 and has been investing in real estate for 20 years. Today, we're going to dig into what it takes to achieve time freedom and what to do with yourself after you reach time freedom. Thank you for joining us today. And Axel's calling from Spain, but he owns 10 properties in the US. Can you tell us a little bit more about your business and how you invest in real estate? Yeah, so the business is called Idea Rights Grower and the fundamental idea is to invest in residential real estate, single family, duplex, triplex, fourplex, taking advantage of the particular structures for financing and you know all the different things. And part of the reason that we call the business ideal wealth grower is because, I mean, we find obviously very biased that this is the ideal way to do it, but it's also an abbreviation, right? So it stands for income because obviously we're buying the properties for long-term income generation through rent. Um, then the D stands for depreciation so we can write off the property purchase price over time. The E stands for equity, which in the last few years has actually um, been a good thing, maybe not so much lately. And then the A is for appreciation and the L is for leverage, meaning like we are basically trying to get a 80-20 or 75-25 kind of deal with the lenders. So that's basically what IDEA stands for. And that's what I started without even knowing it, not, not knowing the abbreviation or anything. I just realized, okay, at the time, and you mentioned retiring from the Air Force 2001, a year or two later, the big uh, dot-com bubble burst, you know, so it was pretty much not only did I lose some money, but it's also, okay, do I really want to be in the stock market? And to me, it's one of those kind of, you know, like when you had a certain illness and you reflect on it after the fact and after you hopefully have been cured, to me, it looked like what I really did was almost like gambling in a casino. And I didn't want to do that anymore and started looking, okay, what would be alternatives? And real estate seemed to be the, the areas that most successful people ultimately ended up getting into sooner or later. And so I started selling it. And with the Air Force career, you get moved around a whole bunch of times anyway. So sometimes you rent, sometimes you have base housing, sometimes you buy a house and then keep it or sell it and so forth. So I had a little bit of a familiarity and I see in the background for you, you know, there are plenty of books and at the time I was still buying like tapes and DVDs and stuff to, to get better educated. And I always said, you know, I want to be the one who's doing the approach the way I would then ultimately help other people to do it. And it was very obvious. We were uh, almost the whole time after I retired in California and it's just very hard to make it work in California due to the price level. So the strategy includes investing out of state, which then means how do you find people you can trust? And so I developed that for myself and then ultimately created IDWS Core to help others do the same. Love it. So today I want to dig into the idea of time freedom because I think that's what most people who invest in real estate as busy professionals really want to achieve. They want to separate their income from their time so that they can do what they want with their time. But can you define that for us, the, the idea of time freedom and what that means to you? 
Well, fundamentally, the way I approach it when somebody says, okay, I heard you on Taylor's podcast and I want to know a little bit more in detail, I typically start with saying, let's look together. What is the amount of money for the average month throughout the year that you believe you need or that you know you need based on you know your personal accounting or your tax return to live the life the way you live it and then ask yourself, are there any kind of little components that you would like to improve? Like maybe you say, okay, right now I'm a normal employee and I have once a year in the summertime, I have vacation because my kids are out of school. But if I could, I would write, like to have a second vacation over the holidays or something like that, right? So take a look at what it is right now and then ask yourself, are there any kind of reasonable things that you might want to add? And, and then identify whatever that number is. Now, for some people, they might say, for me, that means if I had $4,000 a month, that would be great. Others say 6000 Somebody might say seven. There's a lot of people in the initial conversation, even though they wouldn't admit that they need that much, but they say, oh, let's just say $10,000. <laughs> so, but that's basically the starting point. And so then we go back and say, okay, well, let's just say the number would be 6000 just somewhere in the middle. Then the question becomes, what do I need to do when I'm investing in real estate? to get this $6,000 steadily every month, right? And fundamentally, if we were to do an easy calculation and say, if I were to find properties where after paying for everything, I had $500 left over at the end of the month for a property, then I would need 12, right? So it's in that sense, 12 times 500 is the 6,000. And our journey through this time freedom point, as you said, Taylor, is to say, okay, what steps can I take? How can I use my existing money? How can I maybe shuffle some of my expenses around? How can I maybe jump into my 401k or whatever other things might work? Again, should I do like a whole life insurance policy? All those kind of things to say, how can I start the journey to accumulate these properties? Right? And, and it's very hard because then the number is different for anybody. If your number is 4,000, it would be eight with the same, all the other numbers being the same. If you're, Number is 10,000 would be 20. That's just the starting point to say, okay, how many properties to reach this passive income? And then ultimately reality kicks in where you would say, okay, well, if I, if you and I were to say we do this together and we find one in 2023 still and one in 2024. Right? And let's say there were these perfect properties that pay us $500 a month at, you know, after everything else is paid. If we look at a time horizon of 8, 10, 12 years, we would probably, I would at least hope you would agree that we would over those 10 to 12 years increase the rent at least a few times, right? I mean, we want to be good landlords when we're not that charitable, right? <laughs> so let's say, you know, every, every year we increase it by $50, right? That would be, I would hope everybody would say that's pretty modest, right? But over 10 years, that's another $500. So. The $500 we make right now plus $500 over the next 10 years means the real passive income. If we identify that we want to or will reach based on that calculation, our time freedom point in 10 years from now, then that first property and maybe the second property, they go from 500 to a thousand. Right. So is it really 10 or 12 or 20 properties? In most cases, it's not because we need to keep the time horizon in view as well. Now, the other thing some of your audience might say, well, that's good and well, but if I need 6,000 now, I probably need eight or 9,000 in 10 years. The thing that I found is 
the amount of increase, if you say I increase the rent $50, you're probably getting something like $42 as pure cash flow. Right. And, and that's basically the thing why typically your cash flow income or your passive income is increasing faster for the properties that you already own than inflation or any of the other things that will potentially also play, come into play when you really say, here I am now a month away from my time freedom point. How much do I really need and how much do my properties really do? So in the vast majority of cases, people end up needing something like eight or nine properties. I have 10 and I'm still investing, but I can say, yeah, that, that theory, I'm the living example and there are several other people where we basically have lived through the period of time that gets you to this, to this point. And my number right now is like 8,300 or something like that. Once we know the numbers, we set a plan and we begin to execute on the plan. Eventually, we achieve the goal and reach that point of time freedom. But after we have enough passive income coming in to meet our needs, I think a lot of people who hit that point ultimately wonder, okay, what do I do now? I have all this passive income coming in. I see these threads all the time on bigger pockets and Facebook and different types of investing forums. People almost don't know what to do with themselves once they have time freedom. How do you approach that problem? How do you, how have you approached that yourself and how do you approach or help your clients approach that problem? What to do after you reach time freedom? Yeah, I would say there are kind of like three scenarios that need to be looked at or that I have at least experienced. And it can be a combination of all three or it can in certain cases only be one of the three. The first one has a lot to do with when do we actually come together, right? Like if you were somebody that is joining my community with already six or eight properties and you just need to add a few more, but you haven't over the time built a lot of systems, you haven't really set up your estate, you haven't really put a lot of legal structures and stuff in place, then while you're reaching the time freedom point, my help and my advice would be let's get these structures in place so you're not only having the income, which is always the first driving force, like we just discussed, to get to this point and to this number, but then also to have kind of like the independence, the, the freedom of mind, so to speak, to say, okay, I really don't have to worry that somebody is going to sue me and take everything away. I have it properly organized and so forth. So the time, if somebody really goes the whole journey, they have nothing, no property right now, and we're working together the whole time. Now, obviously, then that first case would not be the case because they would have everything in place already. The second thing is also somewhat related to mindset and behavior is one of the big things besides the investing that I try to instill in our clients is how do you approach your role in preparation of reaching the time freedom point? And one of the things I keep preaching to, to my tribe members, which is, it sounds sometimes like preaching because you're not typically getting that when you're in a W2 environment, and that is to really people get people to adopt, not just to understand, but to adopt, you are in charge. You have your LLC for your operations and your property managers, your lender, your insurance company, anybody who does repairs on your property, um, your life insurance people, and whoever else might be there, the people that I work together that I make available to you so you can add more property. Everybody is working for you. It, you are the president, CEO, founder, whatever title you want to give yourself of that business. 
and all the subsequent little LLCs that hold the assets, that's your empire, so to speak. And you are in charge of this empire. And you're not dependent in the sense like a W2 person on doing what other people tell you. Now, the, in theory, when I'm just telling you, it, it's probably pretty obvious. But in reality, as soon as a lender says, you can't get this, Taylor, and this doesn't work, and you have to sign this, and I'm not going to lock this, and it sometimes feels like, okay, I'm basically begging them to give me money. So there is a learning process and an attitude adjustment, so to speak, to say you want to really adopt to you as you're part of your personality. This is my business. I founded this business. I'm in charge of this business. These people need to understand that they work for me even though they're not working in an employee-employer relationship, but a bank that gives you money to finance a house that you rent out through a property management organization is a business structure. So that's the second thing, right? How do we and how far have you come? Now, ideally, by the time you reach the time freedom point, the systems are in place, and uh, meaning like the protective environment, legally, estate planning, that stuff, as well as your mindset has gotten basically to the point where you can... I'm I'm a business person. I'm an investor, kind of like with with um, Rich Dad put and um, with Kiyosaki where he has the four quadrants, like where you really understand that you are the investor business owner. And then the third thing is to say, okay, what are the things that I always wanted to do that I denied myself because of money? Right. I I know, for example, some people that really very very talented artistically. It may have played in a band or being in some sort of like artistic uh, thing during college and stuff. But then when they got their degree and came out, quickly realized it's very hard to build a living on that. The passion, that's kind of what, how I express it, is probably still there if the opportunity were given. Or your passion might be, I want to see the world. And it was never possible because, you know, I needed a job and that job didn't allow me unless you're a travel journalist or something to see the world, right? Or whatever that is. So it could be a behavior passion to say, you know, I always wanted to play guitar, maybe in a band. It doesn't matter if it pays anything. You just like to do it, right? Or you might write want to write a book or whatever it might be. An unfulfilled passion would be one thing that you could do. The other thing is to say, even if you don't have that passion part already figured out and just denied it yourself, is to say, what are other things that bring me joy, irrelevant of how much they cost? Now, it's not, you know, it's, <laughs> there's this saying, I don't know if you've heard that, you know, there's a certain level that people reach, I won't, but some people reach and it's called you're having bullshit money, right? okay. meaning like you can buy anything, any bullshit, regardless how much it costs, because you have like, I think they say above 100 million or something like that. So that's not really what we are expecting to get to. Unless we get hyperinflation, <laughs> but uh, but if you have a good income, and keep in mind, we went through this a few minutes ago. By the time you reach your time freedom point, and let's say your number was six thousand, and then inflation adjusted, it's eight thousand. It's not going to stay at eight thousand because, just like I said, we are these really friendly landlords who only increase the rent fifty dollars a month. But let's say you have eight or ten properties. So that next year, the first year after you reach the time freedom point, your eight properties suddenly make um, $400 more. So it's now 8400 Next year, it's 8800 or 8900 and so forth. And I mean, 
nobody really would nominally just do 50 bucks. Right? I'm just using this because it's a, an easy example. But you could basically say every year if I have eight properties and I, every year I increase $50 and my people never leave the property because they love me for always only doing such a small increase. Well, that means every year you're getting basically a 5% raise. Build it. So how do you, how do you approach it from on the front end to make sure that either you or the people that you work with aren't basically buying themselves another job? Everybody's heard the horror story of somebody who bought their first property and it just ended up being an enormous headache and they weren't using a property manager and it just became another nightmare job for them. How do you approach it to avoid that scenario down the road? <laughs> if, if I wanted to give a cheeky answer, I would say move to the most expensive place you can conceivably afford to move to. And then apply the idea Let's go approach, which is investing out of state with turnkey companies. Now, the first part about moving to the, <laughs> you don't have to, but it kind of illustrates the point, right? Why can we do it and want to do it? And it's partially because obviously most of the people who join us in our approach are regular employees. You know, yes, they might be managers, directors, vice president in some company making good income, but they're still employees, right? So they don't really want to have a second job. And for me, like I said, when we started, it started out, I understood that investing in real estate was the thing I wanted to do, but I didn't have a whole lot of money. And at the time when I started investing, I could still buy 60, 70, $80,000 properties with 20% down. And so having 15000 or $16,000 every so often was conceivable, but it was in California. It wasn't in New York. It wasn't in, in Miami or anything like that. It was like west of Chicago, it was in Ohio, it was in Tennessee, and still is. Those are still the places where you, yes, you can't get it for 80 or 90,000 anymore, but you can, we just had an example um, for somebody to buy a, a duplex for 177,000 and it makes basically 1,100 on each side, right? It's three bedroom, one bath on half and half. So it's twenty two hundred in in rental income on one hundred seventy seven thousand investment. You can't even buy a garage in San Diego for that. <laughs> they would laugh at you if you say, "Can I get just a garage? No, nothing around, just the garage." They would, no, I'm probably two fifty or something. <laughs> anyway, so what I'm saying is, the the main aspect that I think differentiates my approach and what I'm preaching to our clients is not just the residential real estate investing but basically doing it with the help of turnkey providers and just real quick, we're using specific type of turnkey providers that are organizations that find what I call the ugly duckling in a good neighborhood. They buy it, they renovate it, they put it on the market to you and me to buy at a price where it appraises because they know that the investors want to use the LN ideal for leverage. So if it doesn't appraise, you don't get the mortgage, right? It can't be like astronomical prices. So that's where, you know, that 177 place appraised for 180. Because in residential, obviously, it's always comparative. Right? It's not like in commercial where we look at the rent roll and stuff like that. So what are other properties in the neighborhood going for? Is the price within reason for that neighborhood and for where we are in the market? So they put that up. We're basically buying it for that with a mortgage. And here comes the really important part. These exact same turnkey providers who found it, renovated it, put it up for sale are also the ones who manage it. 
right? And so there is a, a very important psychological connection there to say, if I know that I find this house in a nice neighborhood that really, really needs a lot of work, and in six months from now or four months or however the, long, uh, the renovation costs, we are the ones who are going to manage it. The director of property management is going to kill the renovation team leader if the renovation sucks. I don't mean it literally, but like, you know, like, so that <clears throat> knowing that having that in your mind just leads to, um, to a different kind of renovation. And like some of the companies I'm working with, um, the turnkeys now offer one year, the first year free property management because they basically say there isn't anything to manage. Do you find that folks get frustrated with, and this is, I'm not saying this is, this is a problem necessarily. Your model, it's it's a longer term investment model. You're setting a relatively far out horizon for folks to meet. You mentioned like 10 years, a uh, 10 year vision earlier. But a lot of folks out there want the quick fix. They want the thing that's going to get them time freedom within the next, next six to 10 months, if not maybe a year or so. Do you find that people are have a hard time being like receptive to your message about setting maybe a decade long time horizon? I mean, I like the long-term approach, of course, but, you know, are people receptive to it? Well, it gets harder. I'm, I'm a very straight, direct person. Um, as you know, I'm originally from Germany and it's kind of bred in a little bit in the DNA. In all honesty, it's getting harder. And I believe it's getting harder because one thing, I mean, you know, I'm one of very few people in comparison to the mass media out there basically constantly telling everybody that instant gratification is possible. And what I'm doing to counter that to the extent that I can is to try to put things in perspective, right? Is it possible if you were lucky enough to buy Bitcoin, for example, at $25,000 and right now it went to over 40 in six months? Yes, but it might as well go down to 15 in the next six months, right? So if you want faster, potential gratification, you have to be willing to accept higher risk, in my opinion. And even to the extent where you have to say, I don't even understand how it's possible in either direction. I'm just holding my breath. I, there's one good saying, there's a guy on YouTube I really recommend for the two stocks. I only own two stocks and he is like the guru on one of them. His name is Stephen Mark Ryan. And he it is really, he said it so often that it kind of stuck with me. And he says, rightfully so, hope is not a strategy. Right. And if you think about it that way, if you say I invest in something, if it's stock market or crypto or whatever, and you're hoping that it's going to explode, you know, that's basically a 50 50 proposition. You might as well go into the casino and put new money on black or, or, or red and see, you know, if you're right. That's one thing. Now, the other thing is this is kind of like the more funny way to look at it, the more serious way that I'm also always trying to tell people at the very beginning when somebody says, Hey, what you're doing and what you're saying sounds kind of interesting. Let's have a conversation, which I invite. I don't ever want expect somebody to just go on the website, click on mentoring program and, and sign up sight unseen, right? I mean, not that it ever happened, but I, I don't even expect it. And so when I put it in a little bit more serious perspective, it has a little bit to do with where are you starting, right? If, if your audience members, some audience member is, let's say, 35 or 40 or 45, right, or even 50, and we're looking at an 8 to 10-year time horizon, 
That means for the 35-year-old, I'm basically saying, I can help you to live your passion, not worry about money at somewhere between 43 and 45 or between 48 and 50. And if you put that into comparison, I think we need to be realistic and say, okay, anybody who is currently in employment in that age range between 35 and 50 has to assume that it's more likely that they have to work to 70 than retire at 63. Right. It's just the numbers, the, the pure math is just pointing in that direction. So what I'm basically saying, depending on where you are right now, when you're listening to, to me and to you, Taylor, and let's just be middle ground and say, I add 10 years. If at that age, you could say, okay, money worries are over and now I can do what I always wanted to do. That, I believe, is, is a reasonable way to say, okay, it's not instant gratification by any means, but it's also not a moonshot just for once. Because what we're doing in this eight to 10 years time period is literally develop a legacy and a trust. I don't mean trust in I trust you, but it's family trust of assets, which is not just there to sustain you and your family. It's also there to sustain your kids. Not to say, okay, they, they now suddenly have a silver or golden spoon, but they have at least the financial security to say you don't have to, as long as you live, to worry that they won't be in destitute or they wouldn't. Now they can screw it up, obviously, but if, if they are reasonable human beings, there is a foundation there that can last theoretically a very, very long time. Because one thing, and I didn't mention this earlier because it always sounds a little far-fetched, but if you are 35 years old right now and you're buying these properties with leverage, meaning like a 30-year mortgage, right? Um, by the time you would reach normal retirement age, you suddenly have this enormous jump in your income because your mortgage will suddenly be gone. And 90%, if you have a property right now that pays $1,000 or $1,500 in rent and you have three to $500 left over, by the time the mortgage falls away, the rent is probably 2000 and like, 1500 at least out of that one single property will come to you, right? So there is a point sometime in the future where we're not just increasing, I jokingly said, $50 a month on each of the properties for rent income. But there comes a point where year after year or every other year, one of the mortgages gets paid off and suddenly it jumps because you had to pay like $800, $900, $1,200 a month in the mortgage that now suddenly almost all of it comes into, into your bank account every month. Right. So I, I really appreciate that you say, okay, how is it to get to the time pre-appointment? How is it after your financial stability and, and your income situation is constantly increasing sometimes in really, really significant jobs, right? And if you think about it, it's not unrealistic to say if somebody starts today and you get 10 properties in the Midwest, these 10 properties, by the end of their mortgage terms, will probably pay you each $2,000 a month instead of $500. Right? So now you're making $20,000, even with inflation and stuff, you can really do whatever you can come up with. Right? That's sometimes forgotten that these properties are financed, and at some point the financing is finished. Right? And on the journey, by the way, that's the last thing I want to say about this, most people keep their job until they're getting pretty close to the time freedom point, which means you take some of the money um, that comes in as cash flow plus some of the money that you're saving basically from your income to make new investments. But it's 
possible that you might say, okay, so now I re hit my time freedom point. Now that I don't have to go to work anymore, I don't have to buy all these clothes anymore. This is actually one of the things I found, right? Like I have a, a huge uh, thing full of clothing that I used to go, you know, especially before work from home was common to, to put on, on a daily basis, like suits and ties and shirts and all this kind of stuff. I, I don't think in my lifetime, if I'm, unless I'm completely getting out of shape, but if I remain my current shape, I don't think I will ever wear this off in my lifetime. Right? It might be totally out of fashion, but there's just so much stuff that I don't think I would ever have to go and buy another, you know, coat and tie and shirt and any of that. Now, I'm not saying you have to do it like in but most people in over time adopt a little bit of an attitude to say, what do I do for myself that is comfortable to me? And what do I do to meet expectations of others? And, you know, when you get closer and closer to budget money, you don't have to care about other people anymore and what they think. You just do what, what you think is right. But it's important to realize that as you have money that you can also, to some extent, put into the mortgages as extra payment instead of just purely investing all the time, then your mortgages, the ones that are the lowest balance, obviously fall off the soonest. So you have every so often after the time freedom point, these pretty significant jumps. And, you know, it just makes life nicer and nicer. Right? And then you can say, well, maybe I'll get a house in Spain and a house in San Diego and the other houses in Ohio. And that's basically me. <laughs> I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Axel, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Can I do one or two? You can do two if you want. Okay. So the one that I have been most impressed by the last I, I read then is sometimes, you know, I read something and then it becomes a favorite for a while. That's actually called The Code Breakers. It has nothing to do really with investing. It has to do with the invention of uh, gene editing by Walter Isaacson, the same guy that wrote the biography for uh, about Elon Musk. I really love books that tell a story. So I think health is a very important topic. So that's kind of my current number one. But for investing, somebody were to say, okay, if we go back to investing, which is the core of the show, I would recommend uh, The Wealthy Gardener by John Sephori. Nice. Yeah, we've had John on the show. He sent me a copy of the book. Great book. Question number two, who or what inspires you? One thing when you say who, I would currently say probably Elon Musk. Uh, what is the joy of seeing people accomplishing things that they thought they weren't able to accomplish. And if I can help with that, that's even better. Nice. Number three, this is probably my favorite one here. Think about Axel at 80 years old. What advice would he give to Axel of today? I would probably say, and I'm saying this knowing me with bias, 
I wish I would have realized 20 years sooner than I did that most successful people ultimately have a significant amount of their investments in real estate. Because if I had, then I would have started much earlier to invest there. And obviously, you know, in my case, I only really had a little more than 20 years total to learn everything, make all the mistakes and, and build this portfolio that I have. If I had started 20 years earlier, you know, I, I might have gotten to bullshit money. Great knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, where can they find you? IdealWealthGoer.com or which is also maybe helpful for somebody who wants to kind of get a little bit more an idea on how I tick. I also have a podcast called The Ideal Investor Show and we have a daily episode there. So if you go IdealInvestorShow.com, we have it on the website, but you can also find it on Apple and Spotify and all these other things. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.